Bible and let's uh, go to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And just for those who uh, didn't make it last week, I just want to mention up front kind of a layout here of chapter 2 where uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 2 cover the events of Pentecost. And then uh, verses 14 to uh, 36 is kind of a second section there where Peter is explaining and interpreting these events from the Old Testament. And then the last uh, verses of the chapter talk about the results of, of Pentecost. We're still in the uh, second part of that today. Uh, Peter is still interpreting Pentecost through the lens of the Old Testament. And he lines up uh, his own teaching with Jesus' teaching back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, where, where Jesus tells the disciples that everything written about him in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And here we have G, uh, uh, Peter, uh, who's not only quoted from the prophet Joel, but today we'll see he quotes from a couple of Psalms, just as Jesus taught him. Uh, so let's hear what God says through Peter and still is saying to us, And I'll begin reading in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, so perfectly. Um, We pray that we would submit to this revelation and that you would use it to open our eyes to the Lordship of Christ 
We ask it in His name. Amen. So let's first understand why Peter is saying what he is saying. Why listen to this word? What's it got to do with you and me? Uh, And we should know that Peter says these things because Peter wants people to have the Holy Spirit. Okay, He's not just saying, hey, this is what's going on over there. The Holy Spirit's falling on them. And what's up with all the foreign tongues and whatnot? He's also saying, and this is what you must do to have Him as well. Here's how you can have the Spirit too. Uh, Look at verses 38 and 39. I'll jump ahead just a little bit. He says, uh, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So that's where he's heading. You will receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit if you chuck your old way of living and you identify yourself with Jesus. What's wrong with my old way of living? Someone might ask. Well, it's crooked. Peter says that much in verse 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This crooked generation is those out who are opposed to Christ. They're outside the kingdom and they are off to judgment. We're part of a crooked generation by nature. We're born with it. We're morally warped. You know, our, our desires are not straight. They're, they're out of whack. God puts the level of His law on your life and it's like this. That's why we need the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness that comes from the Spirit applying Jesus' death and righteousness to us. But you can't have the Spirit unless you call upon the name of the Lord. So look back now at verse 21. This is where we ended last week. It says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, any Jew hearing Peter quote from the prophet Joel knows he has Yahweh in mind. If you go back and read Joel chapter 2, verse 32, you'll see, probably see LORD in all caps there in your Bible. It's referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh. Everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. But by the end of verse 36, who is Peter calling LORD? Look at it carefully. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what's what's happening between the Lord of verse 21 and the Lord of verse 36? Peter is identifying that Lord as Jesus of Nazareth. This is highly offensive. All right, Peter is preaching to religious people. 
They're celebrating Pentecost. They journeyed to Jerusalem from all over the map. They're called devout men from every nation back in verse 5. They're all hanging around the temple. They all think they know Yahweh. And Peter stands up and says, Hey, you're all crooked and you don't know God. You can't have the promises unless you confess that Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh. Religious people who claim to know God still need Jesus to be saved. You don't embrace Jesus as Lord, you don't know God. Our passage today is answering this lingering question of verse 21. Who is this Lord on whom I must call in order to be saved and receive the gift of the Spirit? And Peter's answer is Jesus of Nazareth. And he develops his argument in four steps. Number one, God attested to Jesus. God attested to Jesus. That's the first reason we know he is Lord. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. My dad has a reputation of being quite the handyman. He can fix just about anything. People see his works and they they are able to identify things about my dad's character. He is a man of integrity and skill. He is dependable. Jesus has works. And when we look at Jesus' works, we can tell things about Jesus. God gave Jesus' works for the same purpose, to reveal something unique about Him. Jesus had works that no one else did, John chapter 15, verse 26 tells us. And the works reveal something especially unique about Jesus. Yeah, He was a man for sure. But he was more than a man. His works reveal that he is God's son. He performs all of them as God's son. They are works given to him by the Father. And you'll notice, especially in the Gospel of John, that he again and again and again is telling people that these are coming from his Father and that his Father is working in through him. And that when he acts, his Father is acting. His works reveal that he is God the Son. They also reveal that he is God's Messiah, the anointed Savior. See, the the Old Testament scriptures leading up to this point are are all anticipating that the Messiah would have certain works about him, unique works. The Messiah would, for example, bring the sweet wine of God's kingdom. And what do we see Jesus doing? Well, he's changing the water into wine at Cana. The Messiah would cause the lame to leap like the deer and the blind to see and the earth to rest from sickness and sin. And what do we see Jesus doing but but healing the official's son? He heals the 38-year-old invalid man on the Sabbath, the day of rest. He heals the blind man. The people ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds with that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Pick up, a, pick up your bed and go home, Mr. Paralytic. See, these works are revealing something about Jesus in the Gospels. 
It's putting something on display about him publicly for everybody to see. He's not doing this behind closed doors. It couldn't be denied. The scriptures were testifying and God was testifying that Jesus was more than a man. He was God the Son in the flesh and God's Messiah. Let's put it like Peter does in verse 36. He is both Lord and Christ. Number two, God delivered up Jesus. God delivered up Jesus. The end of verse 23 says, You crucified Jesus and killed by the hands of lawless men. So right there we're seeing Peter has got a pretty accurate view of humanity outside of grace. Humans are definitely morally crooked. Uh, God can perform everything right uh, before our very eyes. This is what happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. God in the flesh, you know, he's, he's on earth in the man, Jesus, and, and he's performing these mighty works and signs. And what do the people do? Well, they suppress the truth about him and they finagle the justice system to hang him on a cross. See, this is how crooked humans are, apart from grace. We will call evil good and good evil to get what we want when we want it, and nobody get better get in the way, or they are dead. Crookedness crucifies Christ. But notice what the beginning of verse 23 says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What he's saying is that ultimately God delivered up Jesus. It was as Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I read that passage with my kids one night, and my little Anna looks up with her big brown eyes and says, What? That's not right. God is loving. Why would he crucify Jesus? And I said, I understand your question, but that's how we know God is loving toward us. He gave up his only son for our sake. He planned to save us by crushing him in our place. He didn't give us leftovers. He handed over the most precious of possessions. The crucifixion was not an accident of history. It was God's design. That doesn't mean God is sinful. We know from other places in Scripture that God cannot be tempted with evil. It also doesn't mean that the Jews and these lawless Gentiles are not responsible. They very much are, and Peter tells them to repent in verse 38. What we're seeing here is that God is able to ordain evil through human acts and not be blamed for the evil. The point is that Jesus isn't suffering as a helpless victim on the cross. He is willingly fulfilling the Father's plan to save us. The cross is first and foremost God's design, God's doing, God's deliverance, and God's demonstration of love. So how does this serve Peter's argument? What well, does so by showing that Jesus is the Messiah who was to suffer just as God had planned in Scripture. He had set these things out. The law expected a particular Passover lamb. 
The law, the sacrifices expected someone to bleed as a substitute. The prophets foretold of a suffering servant. The Psalms foretold of a righteous sufferer like a king of David that would suffer. God delivered him up according to that predetermined plan. Jesus was the one chosen and nobody else to fulfill that role and save the world. And further proof of that comes in what God did next. Number three, God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. This is Gospel 101 here, folks. This is just Peter preaching truth of the good, the, the good news. God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Psalm 18 uses this, uh, this kind of language. The cords of death encompassed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. Death holds people captive. Humans don't normally rise from the dead. Yeah, God would, the Jews expected that God would eventually rise every, raise everybody from the dead at the end of history, but not within history. Until then, death holds all people captive. It can hold you captive. You will have no say-so in the matter when death comes for you. And we feel it, don't we, when we bury our loved ones. We want them back, and they don't come back. But give thanks. There is good news here, for God raised Jesus. Notice the uniqueness of Jesus. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why? He was a man, like us. What makes him so different? What makes him so unique? The New Testament gives several answers to that question, but one is that death couldn't hold Jesus because Jesus himself had no sin. Death is God's judgment against sin. If Jesus stayed in the grave, it would be proof that he was in fact guilty like the rest of us, but he didn't and he couldn't because he was in fact righteous before God. The death he died was for our sin, not his The resurrection, in that sense, is the vindication of Jesus. God raised him up to prove to the world he is, in fact, the righteous one. That's one answer the New Testament gives. That's not the reason Peter gives here. The reason Peter gives here is this. Jesus couldn't stay dead because he had God's promise through David. Jesus couldn't stay dead because he had God's promise through David. The Messiah can't stay dead if God promises that he was going to reign. He quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. The psalm is one that expresses David's confidence in the Lord. As long as the Lord was with David, David couldn't be shaken. He, he could be glad. He, he had hope for the future. Even if he died, he was confident that God would stand by him in death. Death wouldn't get the last word. Verse 27 is crucial here. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That's the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now watch how Peter moves from a psalm speaking about David to seeing how the psalm was ultimately pointing to Christ 
We went through this a couple of weeks ago with with how the the Psalms of David anticipate Christ. Christ Christ being the far superior David. Verse 29 starts the explanation. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, you all know where you can go dig up David's bones. We know where his tomb is. We know where he's buried. But we can't say the same about Jesus. Because we all witnessed him alive. We all witnessed the empty tomb. That's the point of verse 32. We're all witnesses to this resurrection. The apostles saw him and touched him and ate with him for 40 days after his resurrection. So that must mean David was speaking prophetically about someone else. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet... Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What is this oath? Where is this found? It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. God promises David that he would have a son on the throne forever. And that either meant that son after son after son after son after son would keep reigning. Or that one son would come who would sit on the throne forever and never die. And Peter is saying the latter, of course, in Jesus' case. Jesus belonged to David's line and by raising Jesus from the dead, never to die again... He becomes the superior son of David that this psalm was ultimately pointing to. God did not abandon Jesus to Hades, nor did he allow Jesus' flesh to see corruption. Three days later, three days after dying our death, after suffering God's wrath, God raised him up. Meaning God vindicated Jesus. So one was, I vindicate Jesus and he is righteous. I vindicate Jesus and tell you, this is the true son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the true king of Israel who surpasses all other kings. Which leads to one final step here. Number four, God exalted Jesus. God exalted Jesus. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we get another psalm of David here. Uh, This time it's Psalm 110. And this is another clear instance where Peter is following the the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 20 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 44. 
it reads like this, and uh, this is Luke 20, verse 41. But Jesus said to him, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Thus, uh, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? What's going on? What's Jesus stumping the crowd with here? Well, the common understanding among Jews was that the Messiah would be a son of David. We see that in several places in our New Testament. Jesus isn't contesting that. What Jesus is pressing them to consider is whether they have room in their theology for the Messiah to be more than just the son of David, but also the Lord of David. You see, fathers don't normally call sons Lord, but the other way around. How can this be that David would call a future son my Lord? In Psalm 110. Well, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, you can go back and read it, Psalm 110 in your Old Testament, again, and you're going to find all caps in the place of Lord there, Yahweh. Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. For anybody to sit at Yahweh's right hand was for that person to exercise the authority of Yahweh himself. This would put one of David's future sons way above David, such that David himself has to call him my Lord. In that sense, Psalm 110 brought together two things about the future Messiah. He would be both the son of David and the Lord who shares Yahweh's throne. Peter And Acts is now advancing that story a bit further. In Jesus Christ, we get both the son of David and the Lord who was exalted to Yahweh's throne. Peter, now with Jesus, exalted to God's right hand, is answering the question. Jesus asked the people, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Peter's saying, I know, Jesus is at Yahweh's right hand. It's not that the son never exercised that authority before, but that now he exercised that authority as a man. God exalted Jesus, the God-man, to his right hand, to his throne. Again, Peter figures this out by comparing David to Jesus. David didn't ascend into the heavens. They know that because of this whole tomb thing he mentioned earlier. But Jesus did. They witnessed it back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Conclusion, God exalted this son of David, and only this son of David, to his right hand. This is just like Psalm 110 said. Therefore, he closes in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So that's his answer to the question lingering in verse 21, who is this Lord on whom we must call in order to be saved? We are crooked. We need God's Spirit. We can't have God's Spirit unless we call Him this Lord. Who is this Lord? This Lord is Jesus. 
Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one God attested to on earth, delivered up to a cross, raised from the dead, and exalted to his right hand. So what can we draw from Peter's preaching this morning? Well, the first is repent. I mean, Peter's going to say that much. We'll look at it next week in verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Repent, Jesus will conquer all rebellion against him. Repent, Jesus will conquer all rebellion against him. Repentance is a turning away from your old way of living and turning to Christ. You see there in verse 35 that God is right now putting Jesus' enemies beneath his feet. The, the image is a king placing his foot on the neck of his enemies as a sign of their fall and their destruction and his rise to the throne. God will put every crooked enemy beneath the feet of Jesus. And because he has already exalted, the world is already heading there, is the point. Until I make your enemies your footstool. So it's already starting. It's already starting. Psalm 110 also includes this. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Revelation 19 pictures Jesus doing this, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation 20, if anyone's name's not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the wrath of the king that we must be saved from. The crooked generation that we talked about at the beginning, is this crooked generation is all heading to the day of judgment as enemies are being placed under the feet of Jesus. And this is why Peter is calling them. And God is calling us to save ourselves from going there with the crooked generation. How do you do that? By calling upon the name. By siding with Jesus now. By giving your allegiances to Jesus now. By walking in His ways now. Sin will forever separate us from God. But God sent Jesus to bring us back to Him before the day of his wrath comes. Listen, as we see here, repentance is for religious people. Don't be deceived by just showing up to church and going through the motions and claiming to know God. We must repent from our sins. We must give ourselves wholly unto Christ. If that's not you and you're still sitting in your bitterness and your lusts and your, and your anger and your apathy with no repentance, you are on the road to destruction with the crooked generation. And you need to get off of that road by placing your trust in Christ. There are blessings a billion times more with the gift of forgiveness in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So call upon the Lord in your sins, and he will save you from them and all the destruction that goes with it. We'll talk about how that plays out in baptism next week, but we have the Lord's Supper this week to remind us that our life is one of repentance, one of turning away from sin and trusting in God's work in Christ to save us. Second, God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. You know, we have now seen, what, five quotations from the Old Testament, uh, four from the Psalms, one from Joel, and they all keep being fulfilled in Christ. He is the yes and amen to every promise in Scripture. And I, and I just want you to notice the promise he makes yes and amen from Psalm 16 that we read earlier. Uh, you know, when you read Psalm 16, David is, is, not, is speaking not only about Christ, but about himself. In Psalm 16, verse 1, David is the refugee who has to take refuge in Yahweh. David himself is expressing his own confidence in a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is with him personally, and therefore, you know, he's not going to be shaken. His whole being rejoices. He takes hope in God raising him from the dead. He is confident to experience pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Some of you, you know, memorized this psalm a while back for yourself. You have, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, we want that. We memorize that for ourselves. We want to know the intensity of this intra-Trinitarian love. We want to see God's kaleidoscopic glory at the throne. We want the blessings that are at His right hand forever. But what we're seeing here is that the only way David gets them, and the only way you and I get them, is in and through Christ. Only by being united to Jesus. You see, David's hope in the resurrection stands on Jesus' resurrection. And if you're not Jesus' people, you can't claim His blessings. See, one of the things about reading these psalms like this is the king represents the people. Whatever happens to the king, if he's victorious happens to the people. What do we get with Christ? He is the representative of his people. If God raised him from the dead, victorious and triumphant over death, what happens to Christ's people? They will rise from the dead, triumphant over death. See, when you read or memorize promises from the Old Testament, don't read them apart from Christ. They're only yours insofar as you're united to Him personally and spiritually. But when you're united to Him, what great assurance there is, for instance, that, that you too will escape death. Jesus couldn't stay dead because He had God's promise through David. You know what else He has? God's promise to give Him an inheritance of nations. Psalm 2. He has God's promise to raise us from the dead as well, that we might forever be with him in his kingdom. Psalm 22. 
The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 quotes Psalm 22, talk, see Christ after his victory coming back into the assembly and declaring God's name among those who are his. Point being, after the king suffers and rises and is vindicated as the righteous one, he's now alive among his people and with them. 1 Corinthians talks about Jesus being the first fruits of our resurrection, brothers and sisters. God's promises are, in fact, yes and amen in Christ. Third, we can learn some good gospel preaching from Peter here. We can learn some good gospel preaching. We'll make some other observations because there's lots of different kinds of sermons. And in the book of Acts, this one happens to be the Jews... Religious people. But several things come out here. The gospel is, first of all, Trinitarian. Trinitarian. Look at verse 33 again. Mentions Father, Son, and Spirit, all acting together to redeem, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He, that is Jesus, the Son, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Father, Spirit, Son, all acting to redeem. Jesus also, we see, shares the throne, the right hand of God. The book of Revelation develops this uh, theme in a, a remarkable way where we see both God and the Lamb sharing the throne of glory. Uh, even in the, the uh, I think it's chapter 22, uh, where we see the river of life flowing from the throne of God, and it calls it the throne of God and of the Lamb. One throne shared by God, Lamb. This is John's way of saying the Lamb is equal to the Father, though distinct in person, and so also here with Peter's preaching. Jesus is distinct from the Father in person, but equal in authority and lordship. Our gospel is Trinitarian, or it is no gospel. We also see that Peter's gospel is God-centered, A man attested to you by God, signs that God did, delivered up according to the definite plan of God. God raised him up. God had sworn, being exalted at the right hand of God. Salvation is not a matter of what man does for himself, but what God does for man. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's not pull yourself together. It's God puts you together in Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is God-centered. Peter's gospel is also Christ-exalting. One of the key ministries you know, of the Holy Spirit when he comes is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. So notice what happens when the Spirit comes and fills Peter. And uh, Peter starts, what, preaching Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures, Jesus as the one pouring out the Holy Spirit. 
He preaches the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, all rooted in what the Old Testament expected for Jesus. When we share the gospel with others, we have got to avoid all vague God talk. And we have to get people to Christ. The gospel has not been shared if Christ is absent. Don't ever think that by convincing an atheist to become a theist that he's now a Christian. It might be a step, but people must have Christ to be saved. R.C. Sproul says, it's one thing to believe in God, it's quite another to believe God. We must believe what God has said about His Son. Or we do not believe. Peter's not preaching a new ethic also. He's not not a new philosophy of life. He is preaching the person of Jesus. The gospel is not an announcement of what we do as believers. It's not, hey, you should come to church too. It's not one way among others to have a fuller life. It's a message about what God has done to give life to sinners, period, at all. Jesus isn't a strategy to get people in here. Jesus is everything, period, the goal, the whole point, and the end of the story. He is the very good of the gospel. And if we're not giving people him, they will not know God. There's more to be said here about learning from their gospel preaching. We'll take notes further in in coming chapters. But those are at least three things to note. One last thing. Finally, Jesus' exaltation means great hope for missions to the world. I mean, what more do we need than the exalted Christ and the outpouring of His Holy Spirit? We're promised that Christ will put all enemies beneath His feet. That includes enemies like sin and death and the devil. It includes rulers and principalities of this present evil age. He's unstoppable in making it happen. On top of that, he poured out his spirit on the church to empower the church and to convert the nations. That should give us great hope in talking with our neighbors about the gospel. Whatever strongholds they have, Jesus is able to conquer them. Whatever fears I have, the spirit is able to overcome them. Whatever sins are enslaving, Jesus is able to liberate people from them. Whatever deadness in people's souls, the Spirit is able to give life. So let's pray for this city. Like Jesus is risen. Because He is. He is exalted to save those He died for. Let's speak into the lives of others because we know that Jesus is king. Let's invest in each other and in the mission of this church. No matter the cost, Jesus is worthy of our obedience because he is Lord of all. Let's pray together.